Greetings again, everyone. There are many people that would like to find God, would like to know of a surety that God exists, would like to be absolutely convinced that there is a God and that they can pray to Him and that He can intervene in their lives. One major thing that stands between many people like this who are genuine seekers and searchers but are simply skeptical or doubtful is not only all of education, which is based on evolution, but on a concept of fairness. What is fair about life? What is fair about history? What is fair about war, about disease, about infant mortality, about some of the many horrible things that happen that we read of or watch on television every single day? Just this morning, I was sickened by watching CNN News and, of course, you have to deal with the problem of little Iraqi children trying not to uh, accept the burden of guilt that it was our fault directly, but also realize that Saddam Hussein had a very great deal to do with it. But that doesn't make it any easier to see little six-month, one, one-and-a-half-year-old children emaciated, lying there naked in a hospital bed with no medicines in the final stages of malnutrition or of illness, and dying by the hundreds and the thousands every single week. Many years ago, dealing with this and trying to encourage and to help people to overcome this skepticism and doubt and the feeling that God is unfair, we published in major national weekly magazines in South Africa, in the United States, in uh, Prairie Farmer, over in Australia, ads such as Letters to God one of which was entitled, Dear God, Why Did You Let My Brother Tommy Die? And as sometimes grade school teachers will do, the grade school teacher had asked all of the children to do something very unusual and to write a letter to God. Well, the teacher was very chagrined to get this one letter because the little boy had written how his younger brother had been hit by a car in the street outside their home and how his mother had prayed and said, Dear God, why did you let my brother Tommy die? My mother begged you to let him live after he was struck by the car, but you wouldn't. How can I love you, God? And then signed it, broken-hearted, and whatever his name was, little Johnny. I remember many years ago that there was a young lady who had for years wanted to have a child. She finally married and was expecting a child. They lived up in the Seattle area, and because I think of earlier pregnancies and a problem of the loss of a child or perhaps a stillbirth or miscarriage, I don't know. I know that this one child was extremely important to this young lady. The baby was born and quickly died, and the young woman went nearly insane. As a matter of fact, I think, if I remember the story correctly, and the details are very, very uh, fragmentary in my mind, I think she did have to be institutionalized because she blamed God. How could God have let that happen to her? How do we deal with letters such as that that I received many years ago from a lady who said, I could never worship that harsh, unfair God of the Old Testament who killed all those little children merely for making fun of Elisha. Now, I can worship the Jesus Christ of the New Testament, who is love and mercy, but I could never worship a God who, for example, sent... Saul and all the armies of Israel to exterminate those Amalekites, including their women and their children and even their cattle. How could I ever worship a God like that? So many people will look you right in the eye and tell you God is not fair or that your concept of God is not fair. 
They're not saying God is not fair because they don't have a relationship with God. They don't even really acknowledge that there is a God. And so to God to them is not a person sitting up there who is unfair. It is just that your concept of God or this God you're trying to tell me about, no, no way. There are too many discrepancies here, too many errors, uh, too many things that just don't add up in the Bible. Is God unfair? I want to turn to 1 Samuel 15, 2, and let's deal with one of those circumstances we read of in the Bible. 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, and verse 2. Why did God do this? Why did God tell Saul to go out there and to obliterate a whole tribe of people? Now, if you want to bother to look it up, you will find that Amalek was the son of Eliphaz, who was the son of Esau. And if you trace it further, you remember that Esau and Jacob were brothers, and that through the artifice of the masking of the forearms and so on, that Jacob was able to get his brother's birthright. We know then that Jacob was intended to get that birthright of God, and we see the whole story of Jacob and his faithfulness with God and how he wrestled with the angel that we later learn is actually the being who became Jesus Christ in the New Testament, and that his name was changed to Israel, which meant one who overcometh or prevails with God, an overcomer. But because of that event, as Mr. Dart wrote recently in an article that appeared in 20th Century Watch magazine, those peoples, not only the original brothers, but their children, and their children's children and those children, just exactly as today the youngsters who take to the streets in Tel Aviv or in Gaza or in wherever they are, in Ramallah and Jerusalem, not so much in Tel Aviv, which is almost 100% Jewish, and are out there hurling stones, or if they can, even concocting bombs, or if they can get their hands on a gun, machine gunning helpless civilians aboard a bus in Israel, have probably not even seen their 21st birthday. The war that displaced their parents took place in 1967, but for generations, these young Arabs in these camps, in these other countries, which have not permitted the assimilation of the Palestinian population, but have made them remain oftentimes on their borders in wretched refugee camps for all of these decades and decades, and every one of those children have been fed a continuous stream of venomous poison, of hatred, how we were dispossessed, they have our land, and they are, they are weaned on that information. So it was with Esau with Eliphaz, with Amalek, who is the eponymous ancestor of the Amalekites. And they were a tall, fair-haired, blue-eyed race of people. The Amorites and the Amalekites were mountain men. They inhabited a part of them, the lands to the north of Israel called Seir, and many of them to the direct south, the very mountainous area just a little bit to the west of the Dead Sea and south of Jerusalem. And you can read all of that in Kiddos and other sources if you want to read about Amalek. Now, Amalek was the son of Eliphaz, who was Esau's son, but he was not the legitimate son. Amalek was the illegitimate son of one of Eliphaz's mistresses. You will read that in Genesis 36, verse 12. So, however, be that as it may, he was the illegitimate grandson of Jacob, whose name was Israel. So you see the relationship here. Now, early on in the Exodus, when the Israelites piled up against the southern border where they found these mountainous people, and they wanted to simply traverse through there and go on through their country, 
Israel began to string out along the highway, and they were always traveling rather slowly with their aged, their infirm, their pregnant women, and their little babies. And so because the van of the group would always be the first to be attacked, Joshua, who was pretty much the general of their armies, would put the young men who could carry a sword and a spear out in the front, and so on, until back at the rear of the rear guard would be all of their women and children and aged elderly men limping along on canes, and of course mothers with very small babies or even pregnant women who were not able to move very, very fast. Now we will see what happened here if we look in 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, and beginning in verse 2. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling. Why would God do this? Because that is exactly what Amalek did to Israel, is why God was going to do that. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Eternal. Israel had not invaded Amalek. Israel did not take one piece of fruit or one grain of wheat from the Amalekites' fields. Israel was not a threat to the Amalekites, but was going to pass through their land into the Promised Land. The Amalekites were mountain men who lived down to the south of where Israel was headed. When that occurred, there was a prophecy that Amalek would be utterly destroyed. Numbers 24:20, you can read of that, where God had said that Amalek would be utterly destroyed. Keep your place here for just a moment in 1 Samuel 15, and let's go to Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 19. Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 19, where Moses in the orations is reminding them of what Amalek had done. Remember what Amalek did unto you by the way, he is telling them now to remember, Moses is very aged, he's about to die, and they're about finally now to go across into the Promised Land. Remember, kind of like remember the Alamo, or remember Pearl Harbor. Remember what Amalek did unto you, by the way, when you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met you, by the way, and smote behind most of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee. Now deal with that, if you would, from a human perspective for just a moment. As I've told people time and time again, it's a lot easier to be completely moved by reading the diary of Anne Frank than it is to be bombarded with a statistic that says Hitler killed six million Jews. But when you read of the year after year fear of the little girl in the attic in Holland, the little Jewess who was hiding out in fear of her life, who would hear the Germans stomping around down below and hear the sirens outside and see the men marching with the swastika armbands and know that if they caught her, she was going to be killed. If you deal with this on a one-on-one -on -one personal human level, you will understand probably a little better than just dealing with some statistic. Pick out in your mind one young, beautiful, Israelitish woman who is eight and one-half months along, swollen with child, and can hardly walk, and sometimes is having to be carried or perhaps in a cart pulled by oxen, and she knows her young husband is way up there, three miles ahead, marching with all of these bobbing heads and creaking wheels and neighing horses and whinnying jackasses and belching camels. 
And here are all of these Israelites, maybe three million of them, strung along for about 18 or 20 miles along the king's highway, going up toward Israel, but still in a desert land. When these armies from the sides of steep precipitous slopes come charging down, and you see them take a spear and jam it in a child and hurl him in the air. Now, you get the picture? I won't go into more of that, but just deal with that, if you would, on a personal level, because we are dealing here with tens of thousands of old men and women and pregnant women and mothers and children that Amalek mercilessly stabbed, hacked, butchered, burnt, and killed when Israel had not done one thing to them. You're dealing with that. Now we will go back. We'll read the rest of this. How he smote you, the hindmost of you, even all that were feeble behind you, when you were faint and weary, and he feared not God. The fear of God had something to do with this. Here was a nation that ridiculed the God of Israel, and God was determined he was going to show them a thing or two about God. Therefore it shall be when the eternal your God has given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance to possess it, that you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget it. God said, don't you forget to do this. Because you see, sometimes God uses one nation, one army, one man, to work out his purpose in world conditions or world affairs, and sometimes he will use a nation as a club or a rod or a sword to smite another nation, and says so in the Bible in a number of places. This was actually God, the judge, God, the prosecuting attorney, God, the 24 elders and all the angels, the jury, and the verdict was guilty of genocide. And the sentence was death. Puts a little different perspective on it, doesn't it? If you simply approach this, how could God do that and say, kill men, women, children, kill their poor animals? Oh, it sounds so unfair. But if you look at what they had done and all that they were steeped in, and you investigate their religion, Baal worship, human sacrifice, investigate their sociological bent or their way of life, sodomy, incest, harlotry, every kind of pagan abomination, causing their sons to pass through the fire, burning their own infants alive to a pagan non-existent God. And you deal with all of that, you get a little more of a picture of what God was doing. Now back in our scripture in 1 Samuel 15, again, told you to keep your place in lost mind. Now go and smite Amalek, verse 3, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now do you get a little clearer picture? What do you suppose God thought as there was an elderly lady whose name might have been Sarah Weitzmann, who was in her apartment, and she was whimpering, and she grabbed her gas mask in Tel Aviv because the sirens were going off, about one year ago, a few days ago, and she got her gas mask on, but she didn't quite know how. And the poor dear was so frightened as she struggled with it that she smothered to death. And while she was strangling and smothering to death in her apartment in Tel Aviv, 
over there in the Arab villages about 20 or 30 miles in the low hills between Tel Aviv and the Jordanian border were thousands of Arabs, Palestinians, standing on their rooftops, dancing, husbands and wives grabbing one another. Oh, look, there goes scuds. Saddam Hussein is raining scuds on Israel, and they thought they were filled with poison gas. And they were ecstatic, and they were applauding and weeping with joy and singing Palestinian songs. What do you suppose God thought? What do you think Israelites thought? Get those pictures that you do not have here, a search for two or three instigators who whipped some mob into a frenzy and brought about some genocidal loss of life. You have here a nation which by its religion, by its teaching, by its education, by its background, by the very makeup of that group of people, was blood guilty before the eternal Creator God who gave them every breath of air they breathed. So he said, wipe them out totally. Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in uh, Tel Aim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And small, uh, Saul sorry, smote the Amalekites from Havilah until you come to Shur that is over against Egypt, all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula to what is now the Suez Canal. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Now you read the rest of it, but how then God was so determined he was going to wipe that tribe out that when Samuel learned that Saul had kept Agag alive, he said to him in verse 11, it was God's word to Saul, it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. This was God's doing. It was not vindictiveness on the part of Saul. Saul, if he'd had his way, probably would have saved all the women and kids too. Maybe a lot of the men. But that wasn't God's will. That wasn't the way God wanted it done. It grieved Samuel, and he bawled all night long about it. Samuel rose up in the morning and said, Look, I performed the command of the Eternal. Verse 13, I won't read the rest of that passage, but it said that eventually when he chastised Saul and said, Rebellion, verse 23, is as the sin of witchcraft. And he said, What's all this I hear? The lowing of oxen and the bleeding of sheep. And you say you destroyed them all. You didn't. And so Samuel said, Bring Agag to me. And Agag said, Is it peace? Is it peace? And Samuel, it reads as if he did it himself, but he didn't. I think the text actually indicates that he had other people. Killed Agag and performed what God said had to be done to the Amalekites. All right, if you would take a look at uh, John, the first chapter, for a minute. I just want to refer to this. We are very familiar with John 1 and also with Hebrews, the first chapter, that tells us who was this individual who was doing all of this and dealing with the patriarchs of old. This is absolutely, biblically, dogmatically, proven and established that the God of the Old Covenant, the God who dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God who revealed himself in visions or in dreams or who spoke through an angel to Samuel and commanded him to command Saul to destroy those people, is the one who became our Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were created, made by or through him. 
And without him was not anything. That includes a hydrogen atom. That includes deuterium. That includes your eyesight. That includes human beings. It includes the sun, moon, and stars, galaxies, black holes. It includes the Milky Way with its 200 billion, billion stars. It includes the sun. It includes all of our pagan-named planets that are not really what we think they are. There isn't any real Pluto or Mars, but it's, it's some kind of a planet, and God knows its name, but that's what we think it is. And God made all of that. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. And one thing he made was the day that he knelt by a stream in the part of the world that is now the Middle East, probably pretty close to Jerusalem, if the truth were known, and molded and formed a man, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and set him on his feet, and said, You're Ish, you are Adam, that means red mud, red clay, and you're the first human being, and formed Eve. Now, God's view of human life is very, very different from ours. I remember one time I had a little colony of ants by my driveway in Temple City, and a friend of mine named John David Hill came over there one day. We decided we wanted to watch a miniature war, and so we went down about a half a block away to an empty lot and found some big old red ants. And we began tapping on the rock next to their lair, and they came out ready to fight, and we'd scoop them up in this little paper bag. And we got as many of those red ants as we could maybe a couple hundred of them. We went back down to that black ant hill by my driveway, and we began tapping on that. And the black ants came running out there looking, who in the world is disturbing our nest? And we dumped those red ants right in the middle of them. Boy, we got down there and watched the biggest battle. It was World War II in that ant colony. I actually remember one red ant had severed the head from the body of a black ant, and that severed head had a hold of a red ant's rear leg, and the pincers were still biting while the head was severed. That was a battle royal. Those ants hated each other. Now, if I listened real closely, I could hear coming out of that anthill the complaints of the workers. And they said, this isn't fair. How come I, all I got to do is go clear across the street, dodge all that traffic, and gather leaves and junk and bring it down in here? How come I can't sit there and groom the queen? I hear grooming the queen is a lot of fun. And there are ants down there that do nothing all their lives but groom the queen. And here I'm a worker ant. How come I got to be a worker ant? I don't want to be a worker ant. Now, no ant really ever said that. But there are creatures that are assigned certain positions, such as those little creatures that live on or in you. Now, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I know that we're all fastidious, and especially on the Sabbath, we are want to take our baths and showers and get all clean and dress up in our what they used to call when you were kids in a Protestant world, Sunday go to meeting clothes. These are our Sabbath go to meeting clothes. But if you had a pair of tweezers and you were to simply pluck one of your eyebrows, any one of them, any one of us, including me, and take the pulpy looking little root that you just yanked from your head and put it under a powerful microscope, you would see a phenomenal thing. Because there in the root of every one of your eyebrows is a tiny little creature with several legs and a head and little bitty eyes and pincers on his head, waiting for food. I've seen it under a microscope, and it just makes you sick to think about it. You don't want to believe that, do you? I'm going to make you. I won't make you real sick, but if you've been to a dentist, and I my, and my wife is about to go through the chair, we don't like to be reminded that there are millions of little creatures that live inside of us. 
in our ears, in our nose, in our eyes, under our eyelids, in our hair, crawling around. I know that no wife, no matter how fastidious we are, likes to think that there are little creatures beneath the sheet that do nothing but eat human skin. And they look like they are made of human skin. they got long legs with two little pincers on each end, and they go around on these legs, and they are little tiny microscopic lice, and they, they're all wrinkled, and their bodies look like your thumbprint. They look like a little miniature Michelin man, like they're made of rubber, but they are little bitty lice, and they feed on little bits and pieces of our skin that we shed that works its way through the little holes in your percale. I know you don't want to be reminded of this, but I'm telling you, if it weren't for some of those good little creatures inside of us, we could not digest our food. Now, Jimmy the Ant one day came ashore in Los Angeles. He came ashore in a load of bananas. And he got on that, on that load of bananas down in Puerto Rico. And the way he ended up on that load of bananas in that particular port in Puerto Rico was he was put ashore from a ship that had made it out of New York City following a terrible rainstorm. And Jimmy, you see, had been a part of a colony in Central Park. But he had tried to hang on to a leaf, and the rainstorm was ferocious, and the leaf went down the gutter, down the sewer, out into the East River, and floated and floated and floated until it became a part of some flotsam and jetsam that was hurled up onto the shore by a passing tugboat. And then inadvertently, it was picked up in the pants leg of a passing longshoreman. And he was the guy who helped the pilot get aboard that departing freighter that was headed down to Puerto Rico. And Jimmy crawled out of that pants leg and made it onto that pilot boat and actually was in the pilot's pant leg when the pilot got aboard the ship and was all over that ship. Now here is Jimmy having gone through all of this, Jimmy the Ant. He's gone all the way to Puerto Rico, come clear back around to Los Angeles, and is currently reacquainting himself with a colony of ants in my front yard in Temple City. And he is saying to this colony of ants, Did you know that I was once in Central Park in New York? And they said, Sure. What's New York? He said, Why, New York is a city bigger than Los Angeles with more people. It doesn't cover as much ground, but there are more people there. I've actually traveled for 16 days one time and came to the top of the biggest building in the whole world and jumped off. You know my sectional density and body weight and so on, let me have a wonderful drop down. Matter of fact, when I was on my way down, somebody went by me screaming and landed down there, and it killed him, but I just floated down, got up, and ran around, didn't hurt me at all. And they'll say, sure, sure. What, what did you say your name is? He said, Jimmy, and I come from New York. He said, don't you know that Los Angeles is only one city and that that is only one city in a state? and that there are 48 contiguous states, and that those are states only on one continent, and that as, that is only one continent of many, and that's on a, a world that is so huge that it just boggles your mind, and that's only one world of many, and that there are 200 billion billion stars with hundreds of billions of planets, and every one of those planets is as big or bigger than this Earth. At about that time, they called for the ants in white, and the ants in white came with a big ant net, and they took Jimmy away, kicking and struggling, and they put him in an ant straitjacket, and they never let him talk to anybody else again because they wouldn't believe a word he said. Now, if you get these things in perspective about God up there 
and how God looks down at us struggling human beings down here with all these appetites. Somebody had just got through picking their nose and says, I don't think God's fair. Kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Somebody had just got through spitting tobacco out of their mouth and talks about, I'm not sure that God is fair. Or there are people who are simply as sincere as they can be and who have studied every kind of religion you can imagine and who are very good and sweet and decent people, and they don't think God is fair. I want to put it in the perspective that it properly belongs in by looking at the fact that it says here in verse 4, in him was life. Now, probably one of the ugliest motion pictures ever made in the history of the world was the one where they had this little life that became a boy talking from the time it was a spermatozoon. And it actually had a cartoon showing all of these little spermatozoa screaming and yelling as they're on the way to be able to beget life and to begin. And the movie begins even before the womb. Disgusting, actually, what Hollywood will come up with. But it still does illustrate a point in one sense of the word, if a little bizarre. Who gave you your life? Well, of course, your parents did. And who gave them their life? Well, we can go back through time and we can imagine, of course, that the footprints of mankind lead away from the Middle East and that eventually there was only one pair of parents. And that what you have there that you possess and over which you have control is not something you designed or you created or you brought into being or that you had anything to do with. You're just here trying to preserve it, eating food, and to protect it, wearing clothes and trying to make sure you cross on the green light and to perpetuate it as long as you can by staving off the ultimate moment when it's taken away from you. But you didn't earn it. We might ne not necessarily deserve it. Uh, we didn't create it. We didn't bring it into being, but here we are. In him was life, and life is a gift. And the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, spiritual darkness, intellectual darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. Then he talks about the true light, verse 9, that lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made, verse 10, by him. And the world didn't recognize him, didn't know him, knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. For all of my adult life, I've tried to struggle with the difference between this mundane concept of simple religiosity, of religianity, of churchianity, of belief. I believe this, I believe that, what's your belief? As opposed to the reality of how great is God and how little are we of the reality, not the belief, but the reality. In the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, we read also of absolute proofs that this one who caused those teenagers, and that's what they were, they were young men, by the way, I mentioned briefly, fleetingly in passing at the beginning here, that the lady said she could never worship the God who caused those children to be ripped asunder of bears. Well, it was a huge mob of them, and not all of them were killed, apparently, but 42 of them were. And the Bible very clearly shows in the Hebrew that those were not little children at all, but young men around 19 or 20, and that they were disparaging. And there is one indication in the ancient manuscript that seems to imply they were actually chucking rocks at Elisha 
who was the one remaining leader representing the way of God, the laws of God, the commandments of God on the face of the earth. Elijah was old and tired. It says very clearly that God took him to a place of protection because they were searching for him. And Elisha was there and saw it, from which came the old spiritual swing low, sweet chariot. He said, the chariots of Israel, the chariots of Israel. And he saw this apparition catch Elijah away and take him to a far mountain somewhere. A letter came from him later on that showed he's still on the earth, as we cover in the article on our Elijah, uh, and is Elijah or Lazarus in heaven. And Elisha then picked up the mantle that fell from Elijah as he departed. And as he walked to the river, he took the mantle off and he said, Where is the God of Elijah? And he smote the shore of the river and the waters parted. And he walked through. Miracle after miracle began to occur. He broke a drought. He went to a land and prayed. He asked for a cruise of salt and threw it into the water. And the water was completely healed when it was bad and alkaline and undrinkable. And people were dying. And the land from that time on was fertile. He was God's sole representative on this earth. And these youngsters whose parents worshipped Baal, who had been nurtured under a society that practiced incest and sodomy, were ridiculing God's prophet. Oh, you bald-headed old prophet! And chucking rocks at him. Go on, you old bald head. Get out of here. He turned and he said, May the eternal God curse every one of you. And he went his way, maybe with a few lumps on his head. And the kids all went back, the youngsters, through the woods. And two enraged female bears came out and took care of 42 of them. Terrible thing to happen, isn't it? Terrible thing to happen. You think about that, it just seems so unfair somehow that that could possibly occur. Chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, God in these last days has spoken to us by a son. The his is italicized, indicating that it was added. It should just be son, but it means a son whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom, through whom also, he made the worlds, the ages, the universe itself, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And again, it talks about the first begotten and how he is the Son of God, verse 6. And he says in verse 7, Under the sun he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, not of unfairness, but of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now, the one who became Jesus Christ is the creator of human life. How valuable, how precious is human life in his sight? It is of inestimable value from one point of view. And it's one of the cheapest commodities on this earth from quite another point of view. If you turn back and read, I won't turn and read it, in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, it says that God looked on all of his creation by the time of Noah and the building of the ark, and behold, all mankind was utterly corrupt, and it corrupted his way on this earth. And God said, it makes me sick to my heart, is the original Hebrew. It sickened him to his innermost being that he even made man. Now, if you think of Saddam Hussein standing there as they lowered one of his own officers into a bath of acid, 
If you think of some of the excavations which indicate the little tools that were actually digging around the big hole in the cranium of some skulls found in ancient campfires that are dated pre-flood or pre-Noatian, which indicates they were decapitating men, throwing the head in the fire, pulling it out, cleaving it with their axes and eating steaming brains. When you begin to realize what man is capable of doing to man, not only in World War II, but in the Gulf War, that it took all the way to November to put those oil fires out, and then what Saddam did in his rage to turn against those Kurds and to kill them by their tens of thousands in the most brutal fashion you can imagine, including poison gas. God can become so sick with rage at humans in their inhumanity to other men that he wants to obliterate them entirely. And in two occasions in his history of dealing with humankind, he has proposed exactly that. And by the narrowest of margins, here you and I are, sitting here on some occasions capable as we draw God's good sweet breath into our lungs of saying, I'm not sure God is fair. We wouldn't have been here if it hadn't been for Noah. Because God said, I'm sick that I've made mankind, and it repenteth me to my heart. I'm going to destroy them all. But Noah, the only righteous man on earth at that time, found grace, and the human family, eight of them, was spared. Again, at the time of the giving of the law of Sinai, God said to Moses, let me alone that I might utterly obliterate all of Israel. I'll start it all over again through you. Said so. I propose to begin. I'll give you children, and we'll start all over again. And only because Moses was bold enough to say, but what will the heathen say? What about your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Don't let the heathen say, where is their God? And he argued. He appealed to God. And he, he just pled with God, don't do this. And so God, it said, repented himself or changed his mind and listened to Moses, a man, and said, All right, I, I'm ready to exterminate all these wretched people. The moment you're out of sight, down there cavorting around, having a gigantic sex orgy in front of a bullock that represents Taurus the bull, and Nimrod represents the pagan gods of Egypt from which they have just come out, and I had to break the shackles of their slavery. And again, God was sick to his heart that he had made man. God made man. God owns man. God will do with man what he decides to do with man. What has he decided to do with man? Look at Second Peter, the third chapter, where he refers to that very event of the flood and says that there are those who completely reject the knowledge of the Noatian deluge. Knowing this first, 2 Peter 3, 3, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, everything goes on just as it always did from the creation. For this they are willingly ignorant, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the word, world that then was being overflowed with water perished, and the heavens and the earth which now are by the same word, are kept in store by the faithfulness of God's word and his power, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 
That's the penalty. Death by fire. Now, in 1 Samuel, the sixth chapter, God killed a man. He didn't kill him in 1 Samuel, the sixth chapter. He killed him at a town over there, but we find in 1 Samuel, the sixth chapter, the record where God did this. And I think you've read it before. The Ark of the Eternal was in the land of the uh, Philistines for seven months. And I won't read all the way through this, but Uzzah, reaching up, trying to stabilize that ark, died instantly on the spot. He was instantly brain dead, physically dead, and his heart stopped. One moment he was alive, the next moment he was dead. He wasn't tortured. He didn't feel it coming. He didn't know what was happening. He may not even have felt any pain. We don't have any record of that. He didn't die naturally. God smote him. Now, that's got to be quicker than a 44 Magnum in the back of the head when you don't know it's coming. And, of course, that's the most merciful way to die as a human being is not to ever feel anything. You're here alive and you're going along and everything is great. One moment, the next moment, you're... What happened? The kingdom of God is here. What do you mean, what happened? You've been dead for 19 years. And that's the way it's going to be. In a split second, quicker than the batting of an eyelash as your eye bats, as you look around the, the room here, or you change direction of your glance and your eyelashes just flick and you're not even conscious that your eyelids have temporarily closed across your eye, it shows in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And you will not be conscious of the passing of a thousand years or one year or even one second. I've told about my operation. I won't belabor that except when the lady was going to tell me that uh, she was ready for, for me to receive this gas or whatever it was they were going to give me. I guess it was a liquid form of sodium pentothal they put in my veins to knock me out. Mr. Dart had told me about his operation, and he said, they always tell you to count from 99, 98, 97. And she said, are you ready? And I said, yes, thinking I'm going to count 99, 98. I'm rehearsing. And she said, are you ready to go back to your room? And I looked, and there was a bandage on my arm. And the operation was over, and I felt kind of whoozy, and I guess I've been at the table for about four hours, and I don't, want to, I don't even want to remotely know what they did to my body while I was there. I don't want anybody to ever even tell me about that time. It completely collapsed in my mind to one split second, not even a full second. It wasn't 1,001, because I was ready to count. And I don't remember counting for one second. Ron, I think, told me he remembered counting 198 or whatever, 99, 98, and then he woke up at 97, I forget, but anyway, something like that. But I didn't have time. Of course, he, he, he wasn't counting while he was out. I'm saying his just quick as mine. Anybody's is. So if you ever want to know how is it going to feel to be dead, it's absolute oblivion. You don't know anything one way or the other. Uzzah died instantly because he broke the law of Numbers 4.15 that says, You shall not touch the holy things. Don't put your hand forth to touch anything that is holy to God, the Ark of the Covenant, lest you die. And he should have known that. Now, God smote Uzzah, and some people can't deal with that. That to them is not fair. God killed somebody. But you know what's going to happen to Uzzah? In one split second, wherever he is, he gets up and looks around. What happened to the oxen? Where's the ark? Where's my friend Joe, Jim, and George? Where are all the other fellows that were there helping with the oxen? And he's going to look around and wonder what happened and be told he's in the kingdom of God. And God's going to say, Uzzah, I told you you shouldn't touch the ark. 
What happened? Well, I had to put you out of your misery. Now, just think about it for a minute. Uzzah was going to die anyway, right? Who knows how he might have died? If he'd have lived his life, I'll tell you, with being contemptuous of God's sacred, holy ark, he might have had the kind of character that was flawed in some way, that he made some mistakes that would have cost him and his children and grandchildren, a lot of people, an awful lot of grief. So God, in his mercy, one instant he was alive, and the next instant Uzzah is right now in the same state he was at that instant, oblivious, unconscious, and will come up in a resurrection to life and have an opportunity for salvation, for eternal life. Let's turn to Isaiah 10 and verse 5 and show how God says that on occasions he will use one nation as a rod or an instrument or a tool in his hands to work out his purpose on this earth against another nation. O Assyrian, verse 5, the rod of mine anger. And we believe that these are, partially at least, the German people today. And the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation. And against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so, but it's in his nature, his heart, to destroy and cut off nations not a few. Now comes all the boasting. And in verse 10, as my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols and whose graven images did excel them at Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols also to Jerusalem and her idols, mistakenly thinking that the God of the Israelites was merely an idol? Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Eternal has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed the treasures, and so on. And then finally in verse 15, Shall the axe boast itself against him that hews therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it, or that moves it across the log? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. They were merely instruments in God's hands. Let's turn to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. The ninth and the eleventh chapters are both very interesting in this regard, but the ninth, I won't have time for the eleventh, is extremely interesting. Paul began by saying that he had great heaviness and sorrow in his heart in verse 2. For his kinsmen, he could even wish himself accursed, he said. Verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers as concerning the flesh of whom Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Verse 5. A little later on then, he goes through this business about the children of the flesh and the children of promise. And about Sarah to have a son, and Rebekah who had conceived Isaac. And then said, It was said to her, verse 12, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved. Back to Israel and the Amalekites and the Hivites and Jebusites and the Amorites and other people of some of the races that were Semites, but were in that land and bitterly contested Israel. But Esau have I detested. Now, the word hated 
It's capable of the word hate or detest, but it's also capable of the word love less. It does not mean God did not have love for Esau, but Esau's attitude and Esau's character was detestable. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Paul anticipates the question, God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him it wills, nor of him it runs, or of any of the machinations of human beings, but of God that shows mercy. For the scripture says unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. He did the same thing through Nebuchadnezzar. He did the same thing when Daniel revealed to Nebuchadnezzar what was to happen to him if he continued in his ways and was insane for seven years and rooting around his own courtyard like a wild beast. And finally, when his sanity returned, he actually wrote a decree, and it's a part of the Bible. Did you know Nebuchadnezzar wrote the better part of a chapter of the Word of God that encouraged all other people to worship the one true and the great God because he came to his senses? God has used many people when they were not even aware of it. Therefore, has he mercy on whom he will have mercy when? During their lifetime, and whom he will he hardeneth when? During their material, physical lifetime. Will the Pharaoh come up, as will Uzzah, and have a chance for salvation? Because you read in the Word of God, of God's incredible plan of judgment, the answer is yes! So who are we to argue? He's going to come up in a time where the kingdom of God will have been extant and in place for 1,000 years. And he's going to be brought into immediate awareness with a brand new, young, youthful body that can break the high jump record and have a lifespan of 100 years to live in the kingdom of God and to learn about and to receive and to accept salvation in and through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Is there then unrighteousness with God who determined for that time, in that period of history, that man should be used in the way he was? How many of you knew Uzzah's name before I brought it up? Probably most of you. He's a famous man. What do you think his mark would have been in history if God had not smote him when he touched the ark? You'd have never heard of him. He is a lesson unto all of mankind, isn't he? Is there any unrighteousness with God? You will say unto me, Paul anticipates, why then does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Nay, but Jimmy the ant. Nay, but oh man, who are you? Who are you? It replies against God. Who are you? It replies against God. Shall the thing formed say unto him that formed it, why did you make me like that? That's like the little doughboy. You make a doughboy, hee hee hee, on the ad, you know. And he says, why did you make me that way? Well, forget it then. <laughs> Is that what the doughboy wants? Forget it. You know, that's not what the doughboy wants. 
It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Paul anticipates. It's ridiculous for, for a man to look up. Why did you make me that way? It doesn't make sense, does it? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, what if, he proposes or hypothesizes, if God, willing to show his wrath, show you what kind of a God he is, the whole gamut of his emotion, the way he feels about rotten, wretched people like a Saddam Hussein, murderers and torturers, to make known his wrath. Now, if all God ever made known, like some parents think they can rear kids that way, is his love, what would we be? Some parents think they can just love their kids into obedience. Don't ever have to spank them. Don't ever show them your wrath. Well, they're just stupid and don't know any better. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering, which he did, he put up with it, the vessels of wrath, talking about recalcitrant human beings with all their chicanery and absolute illegality, and immorality fitted to destruction that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he is afore prepared unto glory. And then he deals with that and talks about how he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. In Psalm 115, right quickly, verses 1 through 3 only. Psalm 115, beautiful, profound statement. Not unto us, O Eternal, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for your mercy and for your truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is there now their God? But our God is in the heavens, and he has done whatsoever he has pleased. Tell you something about God. He just does whatever he wants to. Now, you know, over in Hebrews 8 and verse 12, to conclude this brief little foray into a philosophical concept, Hebrews 8 and verse 12, we learn what pleases God. We learn the kind of a God we have up there in the heavens above. And aren't we blessed? Aren't we lucky that he is that way? He says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. He could be, because he has the power, the other way around. But he's not. Is God fair? I don't need to answer that question. All I need to do is to say, who are we who dare to ask?